Last night, I said that uh, Colossians 1.16 taught that everything exists, including the rulers and authorities, which are the devil and all of his angels. Everything exists, including, including the devil and his sin, including Adam and his sin, for Christ in order to make Christ look great. Now, I'm going to go further with this, but before I do, you say a word about why this matters and, and why you should care about this, at least beginnings of it, and I hope you'll hear more. I think in, in my preaching about and my ministry about helping people defensively and offensively in life, pastors should be defending their people and should be mobilizing them for offensive action in the world. And the, the great defense is I want you to really, really believe Romans 8.28. And the way this fits with CJ is that what we're talking to ourselves is promises of God bought by the blood of Jesus, the biggest of which is everything works together for our good. And I know that even if you have it worked out so that Tsunamis work together for good, and cancer works together for good, and loss of job works together for good. So many people don't have it worked out that the sins against you work together for good, including your own. That doesn't seem right. It seems too dangerous to say that because it's going to incline us to sin that grace may abound. I already got somebody asked me that from last night. If the law came in to increase the trespass, in order that where sin increases, grace may abound to the glory of Christ, then let us sin that grace may abound. You think that was a surprise to Paul? <laughs> Read on. <laughs> the very next verse is, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If you don't preach the sovereignty of God and the grace of God so that people say, without understanding yet, well, it sounds like we should sin that grace may abound, you're not preaching it yet. And of course, his answer was not, well, I guess I overstated it in chapter 5. His answer was, dead men don't sin. That's a paraphrase. It said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's another sermon. So, CJ said, you can listen to yourself. You can talk to yourself. When you talk to yourself, you can talk the gospel. And he actually quoted Romans 8.28. And all I'm doing, a little footnote here to this message to say, it's really true. <laughs> it's really true. It's really radically, dangerously 
easily distortably true. So, where we're going now is to ask the question, so what's the good that everything is working together to do? Rehearse Colossians 1.16 from another text. And then we're going to say, not only is the fall of Satan and the fall of Adam working to glorify Christ and His magnificent grace at Calvary, but God gets us to that praising of that glory of that grace through the treason of His people in asking for a king and through the wicked betrayal of Judas, the most heinous sin ever committed. That was God's planned pathway to magnifying the glory of Jesus. That's where we're going. Now, here's the question. Um, What is the good that everything is designed to work in your life if all things work together for good? Before Before I give you the contextual answer to that, The story of Joseph in the Old Testament has a line in it that my guess is all of you are familiar with, and it is so valuable. Here's a sentence, okay? We're into sentences. So Genesis 50 verse 20 is one of those sentences that you get in the devil's face with. And you get in your other self's self with that's talking to you. (laughs) And these brothers who sold him wickedly into slavery are cowering before him. You remember after they discovered he's now the vice president in Egypt and could wipe them out for their evil. And he says to them, as you remember, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. Now, don't miss the meaning of the verb meant in the second clause. Don't let any preacher tell you it means use. As if you're going to get God off the hook for meaning it. Let me say it again now. You, wicked brothers of mine, meant it for evil. Meant it. Meant it. 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 The evil. Meant it. Meant it. God, same word, meant it. Meant it. It. Evil. Meant it. For good. That's I could just go home now. (laughs) But I have some illustrations. Okay, there's your sentence. Now, did you hear the word good? Okay, we got Romans 8.28, all things work together for, say it. And you meant it for evil, God meant it for 
Now, I want to know what that is. Right? What's the good that everything is working together to do? So, if you want to look at Romans 8, 28, we'll just get our answer from verse 29. It's as clear as a bell what the good is. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose for those whom He foreknew. He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the ground and explanation of all things work together for good. It's good because everything is conforming you to the image of the Son so that the supreme older brother would have lots of brothers who are imaging him forth. That's what the universe is for. The universe is to get hordes and hordes of people shaped into Christ-likeness so that the older brother is radiant through them in the universe. That's the good. He is working in us a kind of image. You know what images are for, don't you? Images are for imaging So, okay, good. That's Luther. I'm always trying to pair up the people up there with the speaker. So I get Luther. Hmm. <laughs> he kind of foul mouth, wasn't he? <laughs> You're going somewhere with that. And and MacArthur had Whitfield. We won't, we won't talk about that anymore. <laughs> images, images. There's an image. The point of the image is to image Luther. So think Luther. That's why it's up there, I guess. Images are for imaging. When you are those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many images of him. So the point of the universe is that Christ is supreme. He's got a family, and they are praising him and displaying him in the world fully for the apex of his glory, which is his grace. Now, I jumped, I jumped the gun there because I assumed a text that's supposed to come next. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1 because I'm getting the answer of what we're imaging about Christ from there. I just said it, but now I want you to see it. So if we just have Romans 8, 29, what we have is a band of predestined people conformed to the image of Christ who is their older, elder, greater, superior brother, and this whole family is radiant with him. Now, I just want to know more specifically, anything specific in mind, like radiant with what about him? 
Okay, now here we are at Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined, now get, that's the same word, in fact, the very same idea and context as Romans 8, 29. He predestined us for adoption. All right, we got an older brother, and now we're being adopted into the family to be conformed to the older brother. We all together here now, same idea, same constellation of ideas going on. Predestination is unto brotherhood of Jesus. It's into the family of Jesus. Only here, if you read the next verse, you find out more specifically what it is we're supposed to be radiant with displaying. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now here it comes, to the praise of of the glory of His grace. Now, I think that is the highest verse in the Bible. In other words, if you think in terms of verses supporting other verses, like this one supports that one, and then you get to the top eventually, this is the top. There is nothing this supports. Everything supports this. Once you have a family Foreknown, predestined, redeemed, justified, glorified, radiant, reflecting the older brother, specifically his glorious grace, you're at the end of the purpose of the universe. You don't step on that and go somewhere. Like, now what? What, what, what was that for? Everything was for that. That's the end. So that, that's my sentence. I exist, you exist to enhance, magnify, display the glory of the grace of God in Christ, supremely manifest on Calvary. The universe was set up the way it was for Golgotha. The implications of that sentence are staggering, which is why I'm saying what I'm saying and wrote what I wrote, because it is so unbelievably controversial to believe that the universe came into being for Calvary commits you to everything I'm saying. So don't go there quick. Because I'm saying big-time controversial things about how sin fits into that. Okay, so that's the setup. Now we're going to go these two places. God is going there. You might say, he went there. He is going there. He is still gathering the foreknown, the predestined. He's still justifying. He's still glorifying in order to gather that Christ-conformed, praising band who magnify the elder brother forever, supremely. He's still gathering them. I hope you're in that number because that's the universe. It's about that. Now, how did he get there? First, first tonight, he got there through the treason of his people in demanding a king besides God. So, let's go to 1 Samuel 12. 
1 Samuel 12. Staggering things are going on here. We're at 1 Samuel 12, 12. Verse 12. And when you, you saw, this is Samuel talking to the people. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Drop down to verse 16. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. So, can you feel the indignation in Samuel's voice, which I tried to put in mine? It's disbelief. You just can't believe it. God was your king. God is your king. He's been your king for 1,000 years. And you would now have a king. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 7 says, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in what they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Or back in chapter 12, verse 13, at the end of the verse, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Now feel this. Feel this. You've got analogies in your own life probably. I sure do. Things that were wicked. And God took the wicked demand and he acceded. And from it, he brought the Messiah in your life. You've got to feel the wonder of the history of salvation when you read the Bible because it is wicked, 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 and all of it is designed to get to Calvary with a king. Amazing. Just amazing. Don't miss those words in verse 17. Second half of the verse, 1 Samuel 12, 17. You shall know and see your wickedness is great, 
which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. And then read alongside that, verse 13, the Lord has set a king over you. You think God does not bless you by answering your wicked prayers? Sometimes you'd be dead if he didn't. These are, talk about mysteries, Rick. I walk up against this in the Bible and I just kind of take a deep breath. God, if it's so wicked, why did you do it? You said it was wicked for them to ask this. You're their king. They shouldn't want an earthly king. Now look, I am totally aware that in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 28 and the story of Melchizedek that God had promised a king. <laughs> totally aware. That's not a problem. The problem is how he got the king. I know a king is planned from the beginning. And it was wicked to want a king. Now, to make sure that you really feel and don't miss how holy God is through unholy wickedness of asking for a king, doing it, God is doing it, listen to Acts chapter 13 as Paul narrates history. This is what Paul says in Acts 13, 20. God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. There's a question. If, if God in his sovereignty had planned from the beginning of Israel, Abraham, that there would one day be a king, a thousand years without a king. And then there would be a king, and it would be given in answer to a wicked desire. If he knew that, why didn't he just plan that there would be a king in Israel from the beginning? Abraham be the first king, and Moses be a king, and Joshua be a king. Put the kings in place. Just easy start it that way. Why? A thousand years without a king, then a big treasonous rebellion, and you accede to it and get David in place so that he could have a son who dies for our sins. Why don't you just put the king in place from the beginning? Nice, clean king from the beginning. Clean request, clean desire. Not a bad thing to have a king, I suppose. Why don't you just do it that way, God? This is really complicated. It's long and it's controversial and you're getting your name sullied by people in this room who are ready to cop out on Christ. What, what's going on? Why don't... There are reasons. Let me suggest a couple. Number one, what should we learn 
from his doing it this way? Number one, the kingship in Israel belongs only to God, period. For a thousand years he made that plain, and he wouldn't have made it plain if he'd skipped that chapter. The kingship in Israel belongs only to God. Clear, thousand years, don't ask for a king. I'm king, God says. And that's why he said in 1 Samuel 8, 7, they have rejected me from being king over them as they ask for themselves a king. If he had started with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua, and they were all kings, everybody would have assumed, well, it's natural and appropriate that Israel have a human king, and God isn't the king. People are kings. That's not going to be the case now because he's had a thousand years of direct kingship over this people, and the way the king comes into being is through treason. So this is pretty clear. God will be the only king in Israel. That's number one. Number two, he means in doing it this way to inaugurate a line of human kings, all of whom would fail, except one, all of them. So you ever read 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles? What a litany of failure. You think it's going well and suddenly somebody's in bed with somebody and chopping off somebody's head and doing last-minute revenge, including David. So he has now chosen to have a thousand-year season of direct kingship. They want a king in rebellion against me. I'll give them kings, and they all fail. That was important to see because it's pointing to something. You remember the last thing Jesus said to the Pharisees that shut their mouths and they never said another word to him. He said, quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, David is talking, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, to which they respond, um, David's son, I guess, he says, if David calls him Lord, how's he his son? And that's the last word he ever exchanges with Pharisees. If, if David calls him Lord, how's he his son? Which means, for those who have ears to hear, because he didn't explain it, I am far more than the son of David. I am far more than the son of David. There had to be king, and yet the king can only be God. God hadn't forgotten the first thousand years, like, oh, I made a mistake in saying, I'm king, and I'm the only king, and so he puts in place these kings, these petty kings, 
all the while showing, they're not, they're not, they're not. And one comes, and when he comes, he says, if David called me Lord, why do you just call me his son? Because I'm far more than his son. And now, could it be that God's initial design that there be only God is king in this line. And number three, third thing I think doing it this way shows is that not only did the king have to be God, the king had to die. If the king is going to be surrounded by a group of redeemed subjects who are forever praising the glory of His grace, and they're all treasonous in their hearts, He's got to die for them. God can't die. So there has to be a God-man to be king. I think that's what's going on, and probably lots more. A thousand years to say only God can be king. Treasonous rebellion, all right, I'll use that, and I'll put in place humans, all of whom fail. In the end, I'm going to bring my king in from heaven, the one who was always king. I'm bringing him in. He's going to be human, and he's going to be flawlessly human so that he can die to save all these treasonous people who in their treason brought about their salvation by demanding a king. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are His judgments. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord, who has ever been His counselor. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. We scarcely have any idea what's going on in history. We see little tiny glimpses of those millions and millions of things God is doing in the treasonous acts of the people in America and Iraq and China and Indonesia, all in rebellion against God and working out His sovereign, saving, Christ-exalting plan. Finally, he went through the treason of his people to put in place a line of human kings, none of whom could be king because they were all so unworthy, and brought through that line the very human who would fulfill the design of God to be God as king and also be able to die so that the treasonous covenant people could have Christ-likeness and image Him forth in His grace forever. He's not done doing strange things. Here we are in the last hours of His life, and Judas betrays Him. So let's go to Judas for a few minutes. Judas 
was one of the twelve apostles. Christ chose him to be an apostle, and he says in the Gospel of John, he knew from the beginning who would betray him. This is a plan. From the beginning, Christ never says, oops. And he didn't when he discovered what Judas was about to do that night. He was entrusted with the money bag where he proved himself to be a thief. How many betrayals in ministry have come through the love of money? But that too is another sermon. He was sitting close enough with Jesus at the Last Supper to dip the same cup. You have 12 men. Judas has a very close place. How did that come about? He betrayed him in the garden with a kiss. John Michael Talbot, which probably none of you have ever heard about, was a. I'm, not, I'm wrong. Michael Card. It's Michael Card who sang this song. That's not what a kiss is for. That's the line I remember from the song. <laughs> it's not what a kiss is is for very powerful song very powerful line okay here we are at Luke 22 verse 3 Satan entered into Judas he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to death and they were glad and agreed to give him money so so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And later in the garden, he did it with a kiss. And Jesus' death was sealed with a kiss. Question. When it says, Satan entered into Judas... Why would he do that? Didn't he know that if he seals the death of Jesus, he's committing suicide? Doesn't the devil know this? Because it's so clear that at the cross, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to a public shame, triumphing over them in him. Didn't the devil know this? Did he? Did he or did he, did he not know this? Did he think, I'm just going to get rid of this Jesus? Did he not know if he dies for the sins of the world, I will be undone, which he was undone. I think he knew it. Let me tell you why I think he knew it. And then your second question is going to be, well, why did he do it? Number one, the first answer, how do I know that he knew it? Well, just follow the interaction between Satan and Jesus through his ministry. It begins in the wilderness. And what's he doing in the wilderness? He's saying, Turn stones into bread. 
jump off the temple and uh, worship me. And all three of those temptations are designed to do one thing, keep Jesus off the Calvary road. Use your power. Fred, come on, you do the miracle kind of thing. You can get a big following here, and they'll make you king. Isn't that amazing? Satan would have wanted that. Be king that way. Or jump off the temple, angels bear you up, whole world sees, enthrone you, do it. Or bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything. You can have the world if you just worship me. I believe he meant it. So he knew, got to keep him off the Calvary road. I got to keep him off the cross. He can have kingship any way he wants, but not that way. Or here's another illustration of that. Do you remember when Jesus predicted to the disciples, the Son of Man's going up, he's going to be beaten and spit upon and rejected by the chief priests and the elders and killed, and Peter butts in, remember? Peter butts in in Matthew 16, 22. Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. You think that was just kind of an overreaction to enthusiastic love? (laughs) It was enthusiastic love. I'm on Peter's side here kind of. I'm not going to let this happen to you. I love you. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, Satan, get out of my way. What did that mean? It means Satan doesn't want this to happen. So, here we are at the end of the ministry, and Satan puts it in the heart of Judas to make it happen. Why? I'll tell you why I think, not sure, absolutely, we're not told. Two reasons. One is, he saw after three years of trying to divert him, he couldn't do it. He couldn't succeed through his disciples, through direct temptation. He couldn't stop this man's face from being set like flint for Jerusalem. I'm going up here to die. That's why I came. Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. I'm going there. Nothing's stopping me. Not Peter, not Satan, nobody. And Satan tried and tried and tried, and then he gave up. When he gave up, he didn't give up hating him. He said, I'm going to make this as painful as I can. I'm going to do it with betrayal. I'm going to do it with denials. I'm going to do it with abandonment. I'm going to stir these guys up. I'm going to rub this in his face because I hate him. I think that's the first reason. And the second reason is sin is irrational. If you were rational, you wouldn't sin. Sin is suicidal, it's destructive, it ruins people, it ruins you, it displeases God. There are 10,000 reasons not to sin and no good ones to sin, just stupid lying ones, and we all do it because sin is irrational. And Satan is infinitely smart 
and stupid, smart and irrational. You know people like that. They're in all the universities. <laughs> people who are brilliant, brilliant, and will look like absolute idiots on the judgment day. Isn't it tragic? Gifted brains all being invested in folly of opposing the king. So those are my, that's my best shot at explaining why Satan, at the end of the road, would put it in Judas's heart to bring about his own destruction on the cross, Satan's own destruction. Last question. Where was God? And I use that word just because that's what happens after car wrecks and tsunamis and floods and swine flu. And <laughs> Why is that funny? People die from swine flu. I'm talking about all the miseries that come into your life. As soon as they come, millions of people. So where is God? Was my son, I don't want to give him credit if it wasn't him, somebody tweeted the other day after the crash. Don't laugh at this, this is serious. I'm trying to be funny. They, they, they tweeted after the uh, plane went down just off Brazil, you know, strewn bodies for 50 miles, everybody's dead. One plane crash, no, see, it went like 10,000 safe landings every day and God gets no credit. One crash, and God's got to give an account. That's the way we are. So everybody asks, where's God? And so I ask, where's God? When Satan put it in Judas's heart to kill his son. Now, you know the answer to that. It's very controversial. We, we sing about it from the day we're three, not realizing how unbelievably controversial and horrific this is. First, we answer by saying, God was in heaven fulfilling dozens of detailed scriptures written hundreds of years before the sins happened that fulfilled them. Let me just read you a few of them. The Scriptures prophesy that evil men will reject Jesus when He comes. Matthew 21, 42. Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Scriptures predict evil men reject Jesus. That's got to be fulfilled. Second, the Scriptures prophesy that Jesus must be hated. John 15, 25. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The sin of hating the Son of God is predicted. It must be fulfilled. Number three, the Scriptures prophesy that the disciples would abandon Jesus. Matthew 26, 31. You will all fall away because of me this night. It was a sin when they abandoned Jesus like that. And it was a fulfillment of Scripture. Number four, the Scriptures prophesy that Jesus will be pierced. 
but none of his bones will be broken. And so you read in Psalm 34, 20, one of the, um, I mean, John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. That was sin. It's a sin to run the spear into the side of the Son of God. And it fulfills holy Scripture. Number five, Scriptures prophesy that Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Or Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So my first answer is, where is God? When Judas is selling his son into death and Satan is rampaging to rub it in and make it as bad as possible. And the answer is, God is ruling in heaven to fulfill dozens of scriptures in those sins. Sin everywhere in fulfillment of holy scripture. There never was a greater conflagration and coming together of sin than here. Never a moment where more Scripture was being fulfilled than here. Not only that, but Jesus Himself, not just Scripture, but Jesus Himself had predicted down to the beard pulling and spit what would happen to Him in the sinfulness of his enemies. Matthew 10, 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over, over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. This is Jesus giving detailed narration of the sins that must be. Where was God? God was in heaven, putting His holy word in the mouth of His Son and seeing to it that we not only had Scripture predicting the sins, but the Son of God Himself predicting the sins. I tell you this very night, Peter, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times, and that will be sin. And oh, how you will weep over it. It's going to happen. It's ordained. My father and I will rescue you from it, but it's going to be. From these prophecies, from Jesus and the Old Testament, we know God foresaw, I'm just going to put it as softly as I can, God foresaw and did not prevent and therefore ordained that this come to pass. I could say it a lot stronger. In fact, I will in just a minute. But right now, just say it as softly as I can. Because it is in Scripture that all these sins happen, in bringing Christ to His death, 
We know God knew it was going to happen that way. And we know he could stop it. I could give you text after text in the Bible where God stops people from sinning. Like Abimelech in Genesis 20, who didn't go to bed with Sarah. And God told him in the morning, I stopped you. He didn't know God. God could have stopped any of these sins, and he didn't. And he didn't purposefully. God never does anything whimsically. So for him to permit something that is known for 700 years is to involve planning. He's not whimsical. Like, whoa, what am I going to do? There's scriptures about to be fulfilled. (laughs) He wrote them. And, now I'll say it strong, he brought them to pass. Isaiah 53, 6 and 10, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There wasn't any suffering that came upon Jesus not put there by the Father. Nothing was by accident. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord that he be betrayed. It was the will of the Lord that he be denied. It was the will of the Lord that he be abandoned. It was the will of the Lord that he be spit upon, his beard be plucked, he have a a crown of thorns, that it be hit with rods, that they strip him naked, they mock him, put a crown on, bow down. These were all God's doing and sin. Every one of them, sin. Listen to the most important statement on this count in the Bible from Acts 4, 27. Truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, everybody that had any hand in this at all, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is crystal clear. I'll read it again. Truly there is in this city gathered together, there was in this city gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod you remember what he did? Put the robe on him, tried to get him to do a miracle. Soldiers around him mocked him, sent him back to number two, Pilate, washing his hands, consigning him to be whipped, expediently giving him up to be crucified. There weren't any worse sins in the world than these cluster of sins here. They were gathered together, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, that'd be the soldiers, who nailed, nailed him, speared him, mocked him, traded for his garments, and the peoples of Israel, crucify him, crucify him. All four of those groups to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now, that's a very strange way of talking. Hand predestined. 
to take place. Uh, plans, I understand. Plans predestine things. Hands don't predestine things. So what do you mean, Luke, in recording this prayer of the people? God, through Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, and Israel, did to Jesus what his hand and his plan predestined to take place, predestined in all those scriptures. The hand of God in the Old Testament is the manifest, immediate, powerful acting of God. If God's hand does something, because He doesn't have a hand, He doesn't have a body. So His hand means His immediate, intervening, active power. So what He means when He says, your plan and your hand predestined that these horrific sins take place in the killing of your son, he meant there's a plan and God actively is involved in bringing it to pass. He's not distant. Look what they're doing to my son. I don't want that to happen. I'm going to close, see if I can make this clear for you. you. You may be wrestling now with the theological implications of what I'm saying, namely that God is sovereign over sin. You meant it for evil, Lucifer, and God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, Adam, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, Joseph's brothers, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, Judas. God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, you treasonous Israelites. God meant it for good. You may really stumble over the fact that God means evil, means evil, designs evil, ordains evil, wills that evil be without himself being evil. You may be having a hard time with that right now. And I'm going to end by saying, if you don't embrace that, what you're up against. You can't have the gospel if you say that in the betrayal, in the denial, in the abandonment, in the spitting, in the crowning, in the beating, in the lashing, in the nailing, in the spearing, God had no hand. There's no gospel. The gospel is that in that, God was loving you. We're not playing games with theology when we talk about the sovereignty of God. We're not just throwing ideas around to try to create controversy. We're trying to save the gospel. You can't have the gospel if God is not sovereign over Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles, and the Jews, and Judas, and Peter, and the nails, and the spear, and the crown, and the cry. You can't have the gospel. It's all just historical accident. Maybe admirable in its sacrifice and love, but God can't be doing anything for you. 
He can't be crushing his son. He can't be making a curse for you. He can't be loving you. I am not playing games with the sovereignty of God. I want you to come to the cross and not say that the substitutionary atonement is divine child abuse. I hate that. I'm trying to rescue it for you. I'm trying to preserve the Bible for you. I'm trying to help you go to the cross and feel loved by the Father. There is so much mystery left. We just, we're just scratching away at the tip of an infinite iceberg, which is a totally contradictory image for all you mathematicians. Because an infinite iceberg doesn't have a tip. It goes down forever, goes up forever. 10% is forever. That's right. I think. 10% of infinity is infinity. So we get an iceberg here, and forget that illustration. It doesn't make any sense. We got an iceberg here, and a little teeny bit of it that goes down forever at least is sticking out, and Piper's just scratching it. I want to understand what's going on here. And what's going on is that in ordaining the fall and ordaining Adam's fall, Lucifer's and Adam's, in ordaining a tower of Babel, in ordaining treason so that there could be a line of human failing kings leading to a human God king, in ordaining so much Enmity and betrayal and denial and abandonment and then all the nails and all the suffering and in ordaining all that sin. He's doing it in order that you might be conformed to the image of Christ and spend the rest of your eternity enjoying making much of the glory of the grace of Christ which comes back around and saves all the treasonous people who will simply trust him. If you get that, if you embrace that, if you will embrace God's sovereign action in the death of his son through the sins of his enemies, if you will get that, then you will be saved you embrace that, if you embrace the Son's death for you as a gift orchestrated by God who's on your side in that, if you will have that, you will be saved, the Son will be magnified, and CJ and Rick and Steve and John and I will not have preached in vain. Let's pray.